The Tree of Tremendousness by Thomas Jackson, Chapter 2, The Demon Beneath the Tree, Episode 3, When Sorrows Come. In spite of the problems brought about in my life by the incursions of the bad mother, up until this time, the good mother, who possessed the key to the golden gates of happiness, was still my most glorious queen. But now, a series of events occurred that over the next 18 months definitively brought this time of the original blessedness to an end. The first was the departure of my father. I missed him with a sense of loss that was almost total, a sharp, gnawing physical pain. My whole soul was sore. The house reverberated like a hollow drum with my bereavement, and I lost all joy in it. Even the kitchen seemed now an insipid chamber, a Hadean place of shades, that were but spectral reflections of its former vividly convivial spirits. This went on for some weeks. I blamed Churchill for making my father go back to the war. Don't go himself, I noticed, and I blamed my mother for having a row with him and driving him away. Perhaps if she hadn't done that, he would have decided not to return and hidden in the roof loft for the duration of hostilities. My mother's attempt to stop us going to London rankled deep. Why on earth had she done it? Pure envy, of course. I felt furious with her. The good mother's appearances were now exceedingly rare. Then I began to recover and forget and almost had returned to the happy life I had had before my mother and I once again, king and queen, when a new blow fell. I simply awoke one morning to find that Pam was in her hat and raincoat, with suitcase ready packed, about to return to London. She told me, with all the kindness and cheerfulness that she could muster, that she had to go on a journey and might be gone for quite a few weeks. How grievously wounding are the kindly falsehoods with which older people seek to shield children from the hardships and misfortunes of life. I saw immediately with piercing clarity that this was indeed a lie and that she would be gone forever. We both wept and wept without let. But then I saw that her tears were different to mine. Mixed in with her sorrow, I could see her tears of joy. How could she be so happy because she was leaving me? My tears of sorrow turned to cries of rage. How could she do this? In the long categories of human crime, there had never been a deed so wanton and malicious. <laughs> the treachery of women! How happy I'd been before she came to worm her way into my affections in order, it now turned out, to steal the jewel of my happiness from me. How murderous was Agamemnon treated by Clytemnestra! How treacherously Heracles by Dianyra! <laughs> For Pam knew about the primary reality we'd wore together in the stateless Eden. She knew about the tree and the snails. She'd been the recipient of all my own and Peter's confidences. Our relationship had all happened in an inward theatre of the heart, 
in a timeless place at the unmoving still centre of time and was therefore forever unbreakable, indissoluble. This was an incredible betrayal. My mother sought to comfort me. I struggled out of her arms. She, woman, was in the conspiracy too. I ran to my jungle house and wept and wept and wept. Pam hobbled into the jungle on her carapace and begged me to understand. She did not want to go, but she had another home. She had parents. Parents? Parents? Why had I not been told of these parents? <laughs> go! I screamed. Go! Go! In the end, she went. I cried and cried. I had nightmares in which Hitler came into the jungle house and took Pam away. My mother again tried to explain to me that Pam had a home in London and parents who loved her. I scorned such sophistries. I planned revenge on Pam's evil parents who had so deliberately and perniciously removed her from me. And before many weeks had passed, I had indeed called down hundreds of V1s on London in a reign of fire and destruction and revenge that did, to some extent, redress the injustice that had been done to me. Then, as time went by, I forgot my troubles, or so it seemed, and childlike returned to my former pursuits and pleasures. Once more, I went on expeditions with Peter, again began to retire with him to the jungle house to spend long hours planning fresh attempts on the land of the other side. As before, I ran chattering about the long summer days and smiled and laughed and again smiled. But buried deep within, like nuclear waste, forgotten far below the surface of the land, leaking from its sealed containers and poisoning the very earth, the loss of Pam festered and rankled. It is the upper stories of our personalities that change with the times, our modern, bright and airy, and buzz with current events and the clamour of the world, who's in, who's out, the follies of the government, ideas for holidays, which wallpaper, what hopes, what plans. But far below, in the black waters of still subterranean caves, the hideous shapes of former forgotten sorrows move like silent monsters. They cripple our happiness and paralyse our energies with nameless terrors and malaises, and even at times rise up from their horrible deeps to the light, urging us to most dreadful deeds that we've never dreamt of doing.
It is said that the lives of goldfish are brightened by unending excitement because their memory spans are so short that every time they come round the goldfish bowl it is a new experience. Something of the same is true of children. In time I recollected my love of Pam less and less and because my normal span of memory did not extend beyond a few weeks and my standards of temporal comparison were so recent as to be almost contemporary, I did not notice for a long time that my mother was pregnant. I was taken aside by her and told that within a few weeks I would have either a brother or a sister, and this would be the most wonderful thing. At first, the news had very little effect, indeed affect, on me as being too great for my comprehension to grasp. I met it with that attitude of frivolous agnosticism with which the human spirit emasculates and diminishes concepts too momentous for assimilation. As Arab Aboriginal tribes in Australia must have greeted news from other tribes that Captain Cook had landed in Botany Bay, or into which we ourselves would fall on being informed that aliens from another planet had landed in Turkestan. When for the time for the birth came round, the shock, therefore, of seeing a new infant crying in my mother's arms, puny, wizened, white-swaddled, utterly vulnerable, shockingly new, was almost total. There's no object in the landscape so absent from our vision as that which we do not wish to see, and none so dreadful when finally it is forced upon us. As it is said, Stalin, in June 1941, was gravely surprised by the invasion of an army of three million Germans who had been sitting on his borders, polishing their weapons for weeks. I was introduced into the birth chamber by my uncle Wilverhorse, who in my father's absence had come down to look after his sister in the time of her delivery. Uncle Wilberforce's countenance was wreathed in beaming smiles. A midwife stood by the bed in her nurse's uniform, smiling delightedly. Even Ophelia, crowned in her fantastic garlands, seemed to have arisen from her sad and watery grave to give a weedy smile. Uncle Wilberforce smiled delightedly. The nurse smiled delightedly. Ophelia smiled delightedly. Then Uncle Wilberforce, in hushed and reverent tones, Henry, this is your sister, Emily. I put out my hand in greeting to this new arrival, but as I did so, I caught sight of the expression of total helpless love on my mother's face as she turned her head down to gaze on her new daughter. The earth shook. Huge bronze doors crashed shut with a mighty resounding hollow clang. I was gripped by an emotion of jealousy so intense I thought I was going to be pulled apart. I knew that this was the end of my previous known life. This was use of patience and for me, exile. I had no place anymore. No home. Gigantic harpies with sharp angry beats and piercing claws suddenly hung, huge and black and menacing in the heavens. Chasms yawned before my feet. I ran through the room, howling and roaring. <laughs> For days I could not be comforted as I raged and wept. It was the element of betrayal that was so terrible. I trusted my mother totally, completely. 
I'd given over into her hands the very pearl of my life, and this was how she would reward in my pure faith. I refused to eat and spurned offers of cuddles, toys and sweets, with a disdain that must have been magnificent to behold. I stamped my feet and threw my beloved paper boat in the river. This was reason for fresh torrents of grief, and was added to the growing list of evils for which my mother was responsible. Jackals stalked the land. Thou hast made my flesh and my skin waste away, and hast broken my bones. My sorrow was as vast as the sea. Even the jackals give the breast and suckle their young, but the daughter of my people has become as cruel as the ostriches in the wilderness. I refused to see this wicked and unmentionable interloper, even refused to give intellectual room and conceptual form to her existence. Uncle Wilberforce tried to carry me into my mother's bedroom to see her, doubtless thinking that actual physical contact would turn my grief to love. But I struggled and screamed so much he gave up. I plotted the destruction and disappearance of my sister. I prayed for her annihilation. I brought all my mental and spiritual faculties to bear on this task, that by sheer concentration of invisible inner forces, I might bring about that which physically I could not compass. I would call up such mighty elements, quite what they were, I didn't know, but that they existed, I had no doubt, that the world in general, and my mother in particular, would be reduced to an astonished and awed submission by their power. Oh, come, come, oh, come, ye mighty storms and lightnings, ye volcanoes vomiting fire, ye tornadoes and howling hurricanes, oh, come, come, engulf, annihilate, Polarize! Destroy! They came. A few days later, Uncle Wilberforce again took me aside and told me in grave and solemn tones that my little sister Emily had gone to heaven. I was not to be too sad, for she was now with Jesus. Heaven? Hell more like I exulted. I pranced, I preened, victory, oh, victory, exaltation, you've been very naughty, I told my mother. This demonstration of my power had been so overwhelming and so immediate that even I was astonished and amazed. I can remember the day of the funeral, Ophelia again drowned in the glassy stream, the flowers, my mother and Wilberforce, leaning on each other in their uncustomary suits of solemn black, a whole kingdom contracted in one brow of woe, and all the forms and moods and shows of grief. These I saw from the geranium-cluttered window of the kitchen. It was her fault, all of it, the birth of my sister, my unhappiness, and now this, this fiery shirt of Nessus clinging to me, struggle as I might, it was her fault. This woman that thou gavest to me. This woman. This woman.
the third member of that grim hooded trio in which sorrows so often come was not long delayed, for they come not single spies, but in battalions. After the cataclysmic events of the birth and death of my sister, I did not quickly settle as I had after the departure of Pam. I remained fretful and listless lurching from hectic busts of running about the garden aimlessly from tree to bamboos to cabbage patch, destroying flowers and plants in frenzy excitement, tearing their petals and stamping on their stalks, while Peter caught the unease in the air and barked frantically, veering from this unhappy state to the equally miserable condition of a lachrymose melancholy, when I would sit for hours, withdrawn and crooning, endlessly repeating to myself the saga of my sorrows. The world was full of war and the preparations for war. I saw the verge of a country road stacked for miles with triangular piles of bombs. An American soldier leaned over our front gate and gave me a packet of chewing gum. You're a German, you're evil, I told him, but I took the gum. Sometimes the sky was black with bombers, agents of the whirlwind. It was now decreed that the Germans were to reap, each bomb personally destined for Fritz or Mitzi or Hans. Fifty million people gathered together in a small island, concentrated in a single unity of purpose, thought of nothing but the destruction of Hitler, as I had sought by an intense effort of the spirit to encompass the death of Emily. With the mediumistic sensitivity of the child, I became febrile and anxious in the intensely magnetic psychic field that all this set up. Hitler, skulking in his palace of excrement in Berlin, was finally to be defeated. I joined in the war effort with a will. I hate you, Hitler! I hate you! I screamed, ripping up a gladiolus and smashing its flowering head to pieces and tearing its leaves apart venomously until they were unrecognisable shreds. Smash, 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 smash! Hate, 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 hate! At this point, Peter got out into the lane and up onto the main road. Why and how he'd come to do so was a mystery, for he'd not done so before, and was run over by an American jeep. He was brought back just alive still, in a sack. As it happened, this event occurred during one of Mr Dobbs's next doors, rare periods of leave from the Merchant Navy, and it was he who brought him back. I was sent inside while Mr Dobbs attended to him, but I peeped through the kitchen window the same through which I witnessed the departing funeral and saw my dearest friend lying on the ground, the bright red blood, the inner organs and intestines hanging out more grotesquely than the imagination could have conceived. The head slewed back, the eyes closed in a not ignoble canine resignation. It is a great defining image of my childhood. The vet was sent for, but Peter died an hour or two later. This time I shed no tears. I simply stared beyond and through physical objects appalled into the horror of the world. Peter, he dead. Mr Kurtz, he dead. Huge darknesses lurked menacingly in my mind by day and by night emerged from their lairs to become actual, hideously palpable and terrifying shapes. For days 
I saw nothing but the dreadful image that I had witnessed, my spiritual and mental faculties frozen into immobility, as if a film had been suddenly arrested, and this at a frame coming so unexpectedly upon the spectator that he now realises, with a sickening flood of recognition, that all the previous frames had been filled with a dreadfully occluded and fated meaning that up until now, incredibly, have been unseen. Peter, he dead. Peter, he dead. We buried him in the orchard near the pear tree. Mr Dobbs laid his body in the hole that he dug, filled in the soil, and as I clasped my mother's hand, forgetting for the moment how much I hated her, we stood silent together. Go forward, hero. Go forth, adventurer. Journey on, beyond the great river at last to the land of the other side. May the bones be juicy and the smells delectable in that doggy paradise. The articles and rituals of the Church of England being less than forthcoming on the funeral rites and ultimate metaphysical destiny of dogs. After a few moments, we made our way back into the house and the immediate doings of the bright day.